The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. This is episode number 143. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'll be your hostess for today. I want to, again, wish everybody a happy new year. We are in mid-January, and I sincerely hope that if you need treatment, that you have reached out, or if you have a loved one who needs treatment, please reach out now. Don't wait. We want you to have a very sober and healthy new year. Just a reminder for you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and also subscribe on YouTube because we've got videos going up now. And if you give us a good rating, that helps other people find us. So please subscribe. Today we have something a little bit new. We have an interview, but it'll be with two people. Now the first person is named Callie Estes. She's an author and highly sought after addiction therapist and life slash corporate coach who specializes in harm reduction and utilizes holistic approaches to treat addiction, as well as mental conditions holding her clients back from reaching their full potential. Dr. Estes has over 20 years experience working with drug, alcohol, and food addictions. Her deep understanding of drug and alcohol addiction, including the behaviors and ramifications that are associated with it, place her at the top in the field of addiction therapy. Dr. Estes is an interactive, solution-focused, positive psychologist and cognitive behavioral therapist. Her unique, no-nonsense approach of cognitive behavioral therapy, positive psychology, and life coaching combine to provide the perfect support for an addict. Dr. Estes is married to a professional musician named Timothy Estes. Tim plays drums for the Miami-based hard rock band Crowfly and has freelanced on drums for many other musical endeavors, including blues icon Eric Sardinas and New York City's rock powerhouse, The Deadly Z. Dr. Callie and Tim Estes continue to celebrate Tim's recovery from heroin addiction at their home in Miami, Florida. Tim plays drums professionally for rock bands And he's touring occasionally while pursuing his lifelong dream to be a musician. It is through this marriage of two high-level professionals that we learn how little addiction cares about who we are, what we do before it tries to destroy us. We've talked about that on the podcast many times. Addiction knows no economic status, no race, no religion. It affects everyone. So let's talk to Dr. Kelly and Tim Estes. I want to thank you, Kelly and Tim, for being on the podcast today. I know that every story that we tell on the podcast and every bit of valuable information, which I know you both have, resonates with our listeners. And, you know, we just want to reach at least one person with every podcast, if not more, so that they go, you know, I really need to get some help or I really need to get my loved one into treatment. So thank you both for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. So Tim, if we can, because I know you have your own history, if you could tell us your story, how you got involved with drugs and kind of that path for you. 
Well, uh, I guess it all started when I was 14. Um, I was an athlete my entire life. I played baseball um, and uh, basketball, football, but primarily baseball. Um, at the time I was 14 years old, I uh, went into uh, one of my electives. I chose marching band and uh, I picked up the drums and uh, absolutely fell in love with drums, playing drums, writing music, uh, reading music, anything to do with music. And um, I decided that uh, I'd had enough of sports at the age of 14 and I wanted to be a musician. Um, caused a lot of friction between me and my dad he was my baseball coach and uh he we have some relatives that actually went to the university of kentucky and and there was some strings being pulled where i possibly could have you know gone on to play high school baseball and on to college and who knows what and i i came home one day and just told my dad i was done with sports i wanted to to uh play in a rock band and uh that didn't go over too well but uh I did it anyway at the age of 14 um and uh with that group you know with musicians and and you know alternative people with alternative lifestyles my first experience with being around artistic people people with alternative lifestyles and and to be honest people that actually use drugs and alcohol and i started drinking at the age of 14 going to band rehearsals having a few years having a few mixed drinks um that lasted until I was about 17, um, and then I was introduced uh, to cocaine at the age of 17, um, and I uh, basically used cocaine recreationally on and off um, through a majority of my adult life, you know, while I was uh, in bands, uh, did some big things. Uh, at a young age, went out to Los Angeles with a couple bands, did a couple uh, tours with, with signed artists. And uh, one day uh, at the age of, I want to say 40, 30, actually 38, uh, I was introduced to Roxy's, Oxycodone and Roxycodone. Um, and it was my first experience with any type of opiate. And uh, that, I've never heard of Roxycodone. What is that? It's it's the little blue uh, pain pills uh, it, it, that they give cancer patients, um, uh, and uh, they were real popular here in South Florida. Um, they were they're just little blue. Um, it, it's like a isn't it? It's a type of oxycodone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's very is there a difference between that and oxycodone, or is it basically just a gen, uh, like a brand name for it? Basically the same, but just looks a little different. Yeah, I, I'm not real sure on the difference between Oxy and Roxy. I know they're very similar, and they basically do the same thing. They're both a high-powered opiate, but I had never. Uh, that's when I had was introduced to physical addiction. You know, with cocaine, it's more of a psychological addiction. You know, uh, to me anyway. Uh, but that's when I was really introduced to physical dependency. And that was the first time, you know, I actually had to take a drug or I was going to get physically sick, physically ill. Um, so I did the, the Roxy's for about six months. And that was when the pill mills and everything here in South Florida were, were going crazy. And uh, law enforcement really cracked down on that. And, um, you know, I wasn't an experienced heroin user, 
And I was like, you know, the people that were using with me, I'm like, what do we do now? And they're like, heroin. <laughs> That's the choice. So I um, started doing street heroin to not get sick because there was I had no more availability to Roxy's. And uh, it was much cheaper than Roxy's. Um, and uh, uh, I would say within six months of using heroin, I, I, it was just full-blown addiction. And I'll never forget one of the people using with me uh, said that they were like, you know, heroin, heroin use is, is, is not a recreation, it's a lifestyle. So they were wow. ready for your lifestyle to change. And I was like, not me, I've done drugs for my, most of my adult life. Uh, nothing's going to control me, and, and I was extremely wrong. Callie, did you note him when he was addicted to heroin, or did that come later? That actually came later, which is interesting, because when we first met, he have a beer here and there and do a little coke here and there. It wasn't a big deal. It never really affected our relationship. So it never affected us financially. It never affected anything. And most of it was nowhere around me. He'd be out on tour with the band and do his thing and come home. So... I didn't even know he was using heroin until about six months later because he was financially able to support it himself. Nothing was missing from the house. Everything was completely normal. Everything, including our sex life, was completely normal. And then it wasn't. And it was like, it's like he hit a wall all of a sudden and the house of cards crumbled and it was out of money. Things in the house started disappearing. He's disappearing. And next thing I know, I looked at him and I'm like, you're doing opiates. And he said, of course, no, I'm not. And I drug tested him and sure enough, opiates. And then it was also the racist from there because then it's like, now what do you do, you know? And I had never seen anybody in my career, and I've been doing this 25 years, go from uppers their entire life all of a sudden to downers and make that switch. Either you're downers or uppers or sometimes, you know, you junk tray of everything, but never consistently one direction and then just a switch. So it was interesting to me what happened. You know, how did that happen? How did you get there? How did you get stuck there? And then how to, more importantly, how do we get you out of there? And Tim, how did you make that transition? I think you mentioned that you made the transition, but was there anything that happened specifically that got you onto oxycodone or you just wanted no, to try it? It was almost the identical way I was introduced to cocaine. It was just... Uh, you know, recreationally, hey, you want to try this, you know, I, I, and it was a buddy, and, you know, I, I, I tried the, the, the opiates, and I liked the warm, comfortable, fuzzy feeling, and I was like, hey, man, you know, a couple days later, I wanted to do it again, and then the time span in between the days of me wanting to do it got shorter and shorter and shorter to a point where before I knew it, it was every day, and, and then, uh, I remember I went through my first withdrawal because for the first 30 to 60 days, I never got dope sick. And I remember asking the guy that was supplying me, I'm like, aren't I supposed to be getting sick when I don't have these? And he's like, yeah, don't, well, don't worry, it's coming. And I'm like, no, I, don't think I, I think I'm immune or something. I don't think I'm going to get sick. And I remember uh, uh, I went somewhere and I was out of town and I ran out. And uh, sure enough, 24 hours later, uh, sweats and the shaking and the vomiting and everything just hit me at once and i'm like oh my god this is it this is dope sick wow so what what made you want to get better was it cali or was it your own decision uh, a number of things first of all i uh, i flatlined i i got a hold of some fentanyl and um i uh 
I laid my three three bags um, out on the cell phone like I did every day and snorted them. And within a minute, I knew something didn't taste right. And I was like, I think I better turn around and go find my friend's house that, that lived in the area where I had scored drugs. And um, he said that I came up to his house, rang his doorbell. I don't even remember it. He said he came to the door and I had known him for a while and I asked for him, like my, my brain was already shutting down. Like, I'm like, hey, is, is Willie here? And he's like, what's wrong with you, man? This is me. And I was like, listen, something's not right. Come out to the car. And he said, by the time he put his clothes on and came out to the car, I was slumped over the wheel of the car and not breathing. So um, I woke up uh, 45 minutes later in the back of an ambulance and they had told me, they were like, you've got one hell of a friend because you know you had flatlined, we had given you two shots of Narcan, we're supposed to basically declare you after a certain point. And you know, he begged us to give you one more and they gave me a third shot of Narcan and I finally coughed and that's the point where they knew I was you know, pulling air. So they started uh, really doing the resuscitation at that point and, and but that didn't stop me. I, uh, I, I picked back up about 72 hours later and the same thing happened about a year later. And that by that time, everything was out between me and her. There was no more hiding it. And she was like, listen, you've basically died twice. Uh, I'm not going to stay married to this. You've, you've got a choice. She's like, clean up, get sober or get out. So that you cleaned was, up and got sober. I did. I did. Had Smart a decision. Bumps, two bumps in the road. <laughs> the no, no, you know, no one, I mean, getting clean is not a perfect little story of, of, you know, I decided not to use it. I never did again. And everything's cupcakes and butterflies, as she likes to say. There was a few bumps in the road, but it's, it's been good for the last two and a half years. That's awesome. Yeah. That's quite an accomplishment. So very well done, you. <laughs> Thanks. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcanonojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. 
The service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So Callie, tell your side of this story. So I didn't know about the first overdose. He kept that quiet. So I had no idea. And then I got in the mail because we're married and our mail comes to the same place. I got a hospital bill for an emergency room visit. And Narcan shot. An Narcan shot. I didn't say Narcan. It just said uh, medication administration. And I'm like, what happened? He's like, oh, that's not me. You know, of course it's somebody else. And I myself, this is very odd. So of course I can't call the hospital because of HIPAA. I can't verify, is this him or not him? So I just kind of filed it away and we never got another one of those. It never came again. So I thought maybe it was a mix up, whatever. Then a year later, and there were a few other clues throughout that happening, but about a year later, I get this strange phone call from him and he says, I need you to come pick me up. And I said, where are you? And he said, I'm over on 79th Street. He goes, um, I think the BMW stole it. Like, you think or you know, but how do you think you get a car stolen? Well, he goes, I think I got rear-ended, and none of it made any sense. And, I, and my spidey senses went, you didn't get carjacked. You sold, you know, you gave the car to the dealer. What did you do? So I race over there. I get there. He's got no shoes on, no shirt on, no, I didn't even have your wallet. All he had was his phone. And I said, how did you get carjacked with no shoes? That just doesn't make sense. So he said, oh, this guy bumped me and, you know, he got out. And he said, just give me some money instead of calling the insurance company. And I went in to use the ATM and I gave him some money. And I came out and he took the car. And I'm looking at him and I said, I had always wanted to be an FBI agent. And right now what you're telling me is garbage because I can read body language and I can figure this out. So what's really going on? And he finally came clean and he said, listen, I went to score some heroin and on the way back, I guess I was nodded out. I got rear-ended. He goes, I don't remember anything. And the rest of the story went, he went into this bodega to take some money out of the ATM and he nodded out. And the guy came in to get the money and the shop owner called 911. He went to the ER, he was seen. And then he panicked because he had to call me. So he walked back two miles to where the car was Call me and tell me it was carjacked. They thought we had lojack. So I called 911 and I enabled the lojack, find the car. And the guys that had taken the car were using uh, BMWs and Mercedes to run into jewelry stores and do heist with. Like, literally run into the front of the store and crash the car. And they had found our car uh, full of guns and knives and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I was yelling at him and I'm like, do you realize like, you know how close you were to getting in trouble? And so, that's kind of when I said to him, I'm really done with this craziness. This is insanity. And that's when he sat me down. He said, well, there's more. I'm like, more? What do you mean more? He said, well, this isn't the first time I flatlined. And I went, what? And that's what he told me about the first thing. And then he said another one. He was driving my Jeep on 95 and nodded out the wheel. And the cop came over and he talked himself out of the ticket. He told the cop he was dying diabetic shock. And I'm looking at him going, how you're so you know how you're you're in the middle of overdosing and lying about it like just insanity and that's what i said to him make the decision yeah. me or the drugs because i am done with it wow <laughs> wow i mean that's that's unbelievable <laughs> it, it is it, like, as a clinician you know i hear it all day long i hear my clients tell me these stories and i'm like yeah, okay because i stay neutral but as a wife you're sitting back going wow, am I really married to this crazy town? And am I I'm here in the boat with you rowing? And when do I get out? So, And you don't have to stay neutral. 
Right. I don't. I can say, here's a divorce decree. Out you go. There's your stuff. Good luck with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Were you a drug counselor or addiction counselor before he was addicted? Was yeah. that something you've always done? Okay. I've done this for 25 years. This has okay. been my, um, I wanted to be an FBI agent. And when I got my assistantship and my internship at the prison, I was the first female in a male prison. I went to FCI Rockview. And they told me I couldn't work with the, I wanted to work with the sex offenders and the violent offenders because I wanted to train for the BSU and the FBI. And they said, no, because you're female, we want to start you off with the drug addicts. And of course I went, oh, this is going to be boring. And my mentor who was ex-CIA, he looks at me and he goes, really? You think that's going to be boring? And I'm like, yeah. And then three months later, I was loving it. I'm like, this is amazing. And he taught me body language. And I was so good at Telling, looking at somebody going, you're lying based upon how you stand and how your facial expressions are. And I became really good at it. So I stuck with it instead of joining the FBI. Wow. Is, is that what your book is about? My Married a Junkie is about his story and okay. about me being a drug counselor and a wife not knowing what was happening. And then a little bit about my story. Um, I was a food addict and a diet pill addict. And when I was studying addiction, well, before I studied addiction, I had gone to a counselor. And back then in the 90s, I didn't fit the DSM for a binge eater, a bulimic, and I didn't fit for an anorexic. So they said, well, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just fat. That's what's wrong with you. And they sent me to the fat doctor who went, wow, Fen Fen's the new thing. Here you go. And I got on that and I got on repeal. And next thing you know, I'm 90 pounds. You know, going like this all day long, thinking it's normal, eating pizza and cake and doing whatever I want. And I started to have heart palpitations and ended up in the ER. I was 23. And the doctor said, you're going to die. And I went, oh, no, you're a good little addict. No, no, I'm not going to die. You're crazy. Six months later, same thing, back in the ER, different doctor. This one, way more convincing. And he said, you have to stop. And that's when I stopped. And I started studying addiction in class in, in college. And I went, oh, my God, that's me. I fit the profile for an addict because this is this fits. So then I started studying that and figured out how to heal myself through yoga and fitness. And once I did that, I said, I'm gonna keep going with other people and help them. And then we had met, we were, I was in my thirties. I was 34 by the time I met him. Yeah. So, yeah. Very cool. You know, the reason why I asked you if it was in your book, because when you said that you know really well the body language of an addict. You know, one of the things we've talked about on the podcast many times is, you know, for parents or loved ones of addicts is like, you know, how do you know? And one of the things we've always said is, well, you can always do a drug test, which you did with Tim. But I'm just wondering if what you know about body language is something that you could maybe write up for people yeah, Thinking. sure. I could write something up for your listeners and, and you could do it as a, as a giveaway. Yeah. I would like that because, you know, I think so often parents, as a good example, and not just parents, but it takes them by surprise. Like they don't know what to look for. Mm -hmm. And I think so often the addict is so convincing about, you know, the lies that they tell. And I think that something like that, I think that would be very valuable. I've now given you a job to do. <laughs> yeah, and, I can and with her, it's not just body language. I've never been around someone, this is going to sound horrible. Uh, I don't want to say I've never been around someone that I can't lie to like her, but, but 
uh, her, she, if I, back when I was using, if I was trying to get away with something or, or not be honest about something over the phone, she could tell I was lying through my voice inflection. And she was like, no, I can tell by, by the, the way that you're, you're flatlined in your voice or your, your voice inflection is doing this or that or that. She said, you're not telling me the truth. And I'm like, what the hell is she doing? <laughs> she, she could just figure it out. But yeah, she's, she's got a knack for it. That's for sure. Well, that's, that's awesome. But I think if there's anything like that that you can share, um, it has a lot to do with heart rate. When you go to tell a lie, you automatically get anxious, right? Okay, I'm going to lie about this. Will they believe me? So unless you know how to slow down your heart rate and relax your voice, you're instinctively going to go up an octave, 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 octave or two. <laughs> and I'm going to hear that because I know your voice tone and I know what you normally sound like and I have a baseline. So if I have a baseline, when you lie, I already know it's off a baseline. I know it sounds completely different. So for the parents listening, ask your child a neutral question, like, what is your name? Okay, my name is Sandy. You hear their voice inflection. Then ask them to say their name is Mary. It's a lie. And they're going to go, why? Say your name is Mary. Well, my name is Mary. Their voice is going to change, even if it changes a little. And if you can learn to listen in between the lines and hear the voice change, that's how you know the line, without even looking at them. And then when you're looking at them, there's eye movements left and right, there's looking up, there's looking down, there's stepping back, there's shoulders, touching your face, yeah, touching your face, touching your chest, doing this. There's a lot of things you can do when you're about to tell a lie versus you know being in the lie. Once you're in the lie, you've committed. Anyway, right. and then when the person says you're lying, then it's a whole different reaction. So yeah, I can write that up for your listeners and they can they can take a look at that and see if their child is lying. I think that would be interesting because I think, like I say, I think parents just don't know mm -hmm. when their kids are lying. Now, it may be that they don't want to think they are, but even still, if they have some good information, like some tells, if you will, they say gamblers have tells. Oh, yeah. You know, I think, I think that would be very helpful. Tim, what did you do to get sober? Did you go to treatment? Did you do some sort of rehab? Did I did a six-month residential rehab um, earlier uh, before opiates, um, which which didn't really do it was twelve-step uh, base and things like that. Um, I stayed sober for a little bit of time, but but as far as as um, this last time with the opiates uh, recently in my adult life, later adult life, um, I I did I did a detox, uh, which was uh, seven. Uh, seven days. It was supposed to be 10 days, but I did it in seven. And then, um, so I detoxed and, and then, um, uh, we hired a, uh, we outsourced a sober coach and, you know, I didn't want to use her. She was too close to it. And we, we talked about it. She was like, you know, you do, should I do it? Should we out? So we ended up outsourcing with a sober coach, um, for a few months. And then once I had a little bit of time separated and I had a grasp on, on, on being clean, um, I actually started uh, helping people on a small scale um, with with some of her clients. Um, take, uh, doing sober coaching on a smaller level because I didn't have enough clean time, but but doing some of the smaller things that she needed done, like taking people to meetings, taking people to to sober events. So I was constantly throwing myself into you know that 
those those surroundings and those type of people and it just kept snowballing and, and getting more time more time more time and, and that's how I took him to acupuncture. Oh God! And he was in the middle of detox. I took him to acupuncture. Oh, we're gonna go to acupuncture. We're gonna go to the gym. We're gonna take vitamins. Yeah, we know. That's another thing. Uh, <laughs> she got me on on some natural supplements, uh, which I I thought was hosh posh, and and I was like, this stuff isn't gonna work, you know. And and because uh, I was raised big pharma and anything that came on the TV and said it was good for me, my parents said it was good for me. I didn't believe anything natural. I can't do anything. Uh, those are just horse pills. And uh, she got me on these natural uh, uh, supplements. Amino acids. To start repairing my brain and, and, and things like that. And I started feeling better instantly. My energy level went up. Uh, my cravings went down. My sleep went back to normal. My sleep patterns. I stopped getting body aches. I stopped getting cramps. Like, and I'm asking her, like, why am I not cramping anymore? She's like, well, that's potassium. You need to get over this and that. And why is my face not singing anymore? Because your amino acids are back to normal. I'm like, just everything started balancing out. And uh, she really got me into to believing that, you know, nutrition and, and supplements are just as important as anything else in recovery as far as building your body back up and building you know repairing the brain and things like that so and, and you're absolutely correct because of the drugs they kill off various good cells good oh, yeah. you know good things in the body and so once you stop taking the drugs then you have to put all that back and that's that's what nutrition is very good the other thing that you said which i think is huge not to evaluate for you, but what really um, sits with me is helping other people. Yeah. And that's, that there, you just, you can't put a price on that. And, uh -huh. and it, I think it's so important because it takes you out of your head mm -hmm. and into helping other people. And I think that's huge. Yeah. Once I had 18 months, well, no, it was right after I had about a year clean. Uh, she sent me on an assignment um, for a, a guy that was an alcoholic and his family had thrown um, a, a family reunion on a cruise boat. And like, you know, what do most people go on cruises to do to drink? So he hired her to uh, set him up with a sober coach and actually would go on the cruise with him and just be a friend and help him not drink. And that was the coolest job ever. I got to go to the Caribbean and get up every morning at eight o'clock and have coffee with this guy and make sure he didn't drink and you know, go around the islands and do things and just make sure that he just didn't pick up a drink. And it was, that was the coolest, coolest job ever. That's awesome. Tim, tell me, tell me what you're doing going forward with your music. I would like to hear about that. Yeah, I'm in a band called Crowfly. Um, and uh, it's an all original rock band out of uh, Miami. Um, and uh, we, uh, we had done some tours uh, Texas, Tennessee. We went out to California and back. Um, uh, played some shows with some some bigger bands around here. And um, we actually we just took about ninety days off. Our singer had a kid, and we took a little time off. And uh, we put out a five song EP that did really well. And uh, uh, did a little touring behind it. And uh, we've just recently gotten back in the studio to start writing a. a follow-up EP and uh, we're going to be uh, playing shows and going back out on the road as soon as we get the second EP um, finished. 
That's the band, awesome. Yeah, the band is, it's a rock band. The band's name is Crowfly, and uh, we've got tons of material all over the internet, and uh, really looking forward to uh, the second EP and getting back out there. I, I love entertaining and I love playing music live. It's the best feeling in the world. I would agree. I am a singer, so I would definitely agree. If people want to know more about Crowfly, how can they do that? There, we have... Uh, Crowflyrocks.com is their website. Yep, Crowflyrocks, plural, rocks.com is our website. Or you can go to ReverbNation.com forward slash Crowflyrocks, plural again. Or you can just go to YouTube and type Crowfly in the search bar, and we've got uh, videos for days up there. Live performances, videos, uh, fans have made uh, lyric videos for us and posted them. It's it's been a lot of fun. That's great. And Callie, what's next for you? What's coming down the pike for you? So we have a book, Married a Junkie, which came out about a year ago. I have a new book dropping January 1. And it's called The Seven Keys to Tap into the Wealth Inside You. And it's all about self-help and getting rid of limiting belief systems and making peace with money and creating a roadmap and figuring out purpose and passion in life. Because as I'm working with my clients, I'm doing all this stuff. So I put it together in a book and I thought, you know what, this is like recovery 2.0 kind of stuff. The next thing, what do I do now? I got the drug addiction under control. Now what? Now you quit smoking. Now you work out. Now you eat healthy. Now you figure out your purpose. So that's what I'm working on. That's awesome. Tim, if you had just one message for our listeners, what would that be? Oh, God, I could think of a million of them right now. Um, uh, you know, the most important thing is if you are caught up in addiction right now, even if you're in, in active use right now and, and you're at the end of the rope and, and you feel like, you know, there's no hope, there always is. It's just a phone call away. You just got to pick up the phone, call somebody, get some help. There's always going to be somebody out there that knows how to get you help that would fit into your lifestyle or your economic factors or whatever it is. Somebody will get you help. Just pick up the phone. Exactly. And Callie, you, what would be one message you would give to our listeners? Addiction's not your problem. It's your solution to a problem. I want to know what your problem is. If I can help you fix your problem, you won't need that drug or drink or sex or whatever it is you're using to feel better. It's your coping mechanism. Exactly. I want to thank you both again for taking the time to be on the podcast. I think that you, you both have a good story individually and together. And I know that every story that we tell resonates with someone. So I really appreciate you both being on the podcast. We Thank appreciate you for us. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I thought it was very interesting, and I am excited to see what Callie writes up about body language, because if you are a parent and you're not sure if your child is addicted, or if you are a child and you're not sure if your parent is addicted, I think that learning some of the body language would be valuable in addition to um, getting a drug test done. Once again, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and also subscribe on YouTube and give us a good rating so that more and more people will find us and find the message of hope. What Tim said is exactly what we say. Just reach out. Don't wait. Do it now. But reach out if you need help or if you need help for a loved one. Reach out and get it. It's there. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. 
You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.